Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herd Mates Sodcast. Um, today, um, it's my pleasure to have as a guest uh, Dr. Fred Provenza. Fred, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted, Peter. I'm absolutely delighted. Um, now, Fred, I first met you probably not long after I got to Oregon State in the mid-80s. You were on faculty at Utah State University. Now, you were in the rangeland resources department, is that right? Yes, formerly, you know, originally it was Department of Range, uh, range Science. And then um, it, the name changed to the wildland, wildland, Department of Wildland Resources. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, so it started out in, in range science. Uh, well, originally, as an undergrad, I was in wildlife biology and working on a ranch. Worked on a ranch for seven years in Colorado. And I had a lot of friends that were in range science. So that whole idea of domestic animals, wild animals. Um, I went to Utah State as a, as a grad student. And I tell you my interest, it, well, there was a group there that was, rather than saying domestic animals are bad, all they do is harm landscapes. They were saying, how can we use domestic animals to enhance habitat for wildlife species? And I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. Here I've been on the ranch. I appreciate farming and ranching and what that's about, but the wildlife I appreciate also. And so um, I went to Utah State University to work on that program. And that's basically what I did work on, you know. Where did you grow up? I grew up in central Colorado, a little town called Salida. It's what they call the heart of the Rockies. They like to call it the heart of the Rockies. It's at about oh, 7,600 feet elevation and 14,000 foot peaks all around. So I grew up in the mountains of Colorado, really, and just absolutely loving, loving the outdoors, plants, animals, wild creatures. Mm -hmm. And your career, when I think of what you've been doing, you've been looking at in... Uh, if this isn't accurate, please forgive me, but ingestive behavior, what influences grazing behavior and and dietary selection of animals in these kinds of rangeland environments. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely, Peter. That's absolutely it. And that grew out of um, the interest in wildlife and uh, just, you know, where do they live? What do they eat? Where do they go? Same thing on the ranch. And had so many interesting conversations. You know, the the old fellow that I worked with, Henry DeLuca and his wife Rose, you know, Henry didn't have any formal education, but his knowledge came to his brain through his hands. He had a lifetime of experience. And we used to talk, you know, we ran cattle um, up in the high mountains during the spring, summer, and fall. And uh, you know, just observing the animals up there and talking to Henry about his experiences over time. Of, um, I, I never forget taking classes in genetics at uh, Colorado State University as an undergrad. 
And then coming back to the ranch one summer and talking to Henry and saying, you know, Henry, I noticed you always keep your own replacement heifers. You never buy heifers from outside and bring them into the ranch. Why do you do that? We were learning about heterosis and all these kind of things. And, you know, I was young and I'm still naive, but I was young and maybe more naive then. And he sat down, you know, I mean, we worked long days. It was like 10 hour days, even as a, as a, at CSU, and, but he'd always take time to talk. And he started telling me stories. He said, oh yeah, I've done that, I, I did that before. And he said, you know, when we go up on these high elevation rangelands and say we're gonna move animals from Drony into Weldon, just uh, some names of places. He said, you know, when we go on Drony, we know we're gonna find some cows over here, some over there, they're gonna be in their little groups and we know them and they know us and it's easy to find them and to move them. So you bring in animals that, from other places, you don't know if you're going to find them, for one, where you're going to find them, for two, odds are they're not going to be bred because they're going to be so stressed, for three. And he summed up that conversation by saying, you know, the problem is the animals just don't know the range. And when I think of the work that we did for 40 some years, it was all about what does it mean for an animal to know the range, basically, you know? And then that got into what you were saying, ingested behavior, food selection, what do they eat, you know, in different times, different places, where do they go, habitat selection. So that's long-winded to what you, you were saying, but that's just trying to put some flesh on, you know, how, where my interest came from and then, uh, you know, to give credit to to people like like Henry, who who um, you know, I think in academic institutions maybe didn't happen deliberately, but unless it's academic and unless it's been studied in many many different ways, we maybe tend to discount that. And it's it's my attempt to to give credit to to observations that people have made over lifetimes that are really really well founded. And maybe you know, I mean, we get into all this biochemistry and, you know, all these different compounds and all this stuff. Henry didn't know about that, but he knew the bigger picture of all of, of what was going on, you know. Sort of the so what. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, That's right. But but I think I remember from one of your presentations that I've gotten to see where the 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 learning young learning from the maternal herdmates um and one particular one was animals learning that a plant is toxic in one range then being moved to a different range where that same toxic plant shows up but now everything else is different and something happened. That yes, Peter, you've got a very good memory. I I, ha I sometimes mention that, not not too often, but yes, that was a situation in uh, in New Mexico where where the the rancher had never had a problem with poisonous plants in thirty years of ranching ever ever had an issue, and then a, a severe drought struck, and he had to move. He figured his only choice was to split the herd leave part of them on the familiar range, move part of them to the unfamiliar range. And it's those that got moved to the unfamiliar environment where he had um, severe, severe losses to the poisonous plants. And I, 
usually when I'm teaching courses, I like to use that as an example because it illustrates so many things that we've talked about up to that point that could all explain why either individually or collectively, why he may have had so much trouble when he moved the animals. Everything's from that the, the chemistry of those plants could be quite different, growing in a different environment. So that, that could fool the animals. Uh, plants that complement and may offset the toxicity of the plant may not have been present in that environment. Um, the stress of being in an environment. Um, I remember some really interesting studies that were done with with lab rats and so forth, showing that the same dose of a toxin in a familiar versus an unfamiliar environment, much greater adverse impact in an unfamiliar than in a familiar environment it has to do with stress and, and some of the hormonal and physiological responses that are happening in an animal. And they were studying that in rats because of all of the clinical work they'd done with people that were showing um, adverse effects. If, if they're in a in an unfamiliar environment, so yeah, that's uh, um, you've got a good memory, Peter, and I know that anyway from our interactions in the past. But yeah, that's I like to use that story not so much in uh, in short talks, but in in the longer doing courses because we've talked about up to that point so many things about plant behavior and the factors of influence, the environmental factors that influence plant behavior and then uh, an animal behavior. And then it's it just kind of is a way to pull many of those ideas together. Um, you also gave me one of my favorite quotes about averages. Um, but <laughs> I don't know that I should identify you publicly as the source of that and just take the slings myself for using it. But Again, the, the, the problem here is that we're looking at very complicated systems, um, wickedly complex systems, and it's difficult to study them using certain techniques and, and mindsets. And that's fine. That, that's part of reality. Um, on the other hand, we have others who are approaching equally complicated systems using tremendously inferior tools to study them and having no problem acting as if, oh, we know this now. Um, the, the one thing that your last answer triggered was a memory of speaking to another guest who did studies of the interaction between nutritional status and susceptibility to a toxin like lead. And all of a sudden, you know, you put, put the organism in stress and it takes less lead to produce the cognitive impairment that, and so we, we, we have these tremendously complicated organisms like us or like a grazing animal or like a herd of grazing animals on different landforms with all the complexity that can come from topography and uh, ecozones, microclimates and the plants that would grow in those. And, and then you could add in a predator that would influence behavior and all of this. And yet 
we have people who for 30 or 40 or however many years have worked in that environment and through their observation have learned these things and internalized them, but they haven't obviously tried to quantify them in a scientist's approach, but they're a natural scientist. They're observing and applying and learning from that. Um, and, and so, yeah, it would be nice if we could have awarded him a PhD for what he knows um, and found a way for him to communicate it to others. That's the shame, is that a lot of that information then doesn't transfer from generation to generation. I think that's absolutely the case, Peter. And I think um, the further away we get from working in natural systems, and I think that can be true for farmers and ranchers as well. The more we industrialize, the less time we spend um, with animals in landscapes, the more we distance ourselves from that kind of uh, knowledge. That's, that's a good point that you're making. You know, I can't help but say this, and I, I shouldn't, but when you mentioned the, the example with lead, so true. And it made me think about so many studies we did with people at the Poisonous Plants Research Lab, showing that the nutritional state that an animal's in, level of stress as well, but simply the nutritional state influences the ability to detoxify compounds that are in plants. Um, and in other words, as, as you well know, it takes energy, it takes protein, it takes minerals for detoxification processes in the liver and rumen and in other parts of the body. And uh, when animals are on a high plane of nutrition, they're better able to deal with toxins. We really got into that in a big way with a plant that grows in the Great Basin up into your neck of the woods, of course, and that's sagebrush. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, a lot of uh, farmers and ranchers see sagebrush as the bane of their existence. It's something to get rid of. And certainly um, in monoculture over vast areas, it's, it's, I think it's not good to have just a monoculture of sagebrush, but sagebrush as part of diversity can be very, very health promoting for all kinds of creatures. But we got involved in work with, with livestock producers both sheep and cattle producers that were trying to rejuvenate sagebrush without getting into fossil fuel intensive uh, practices, be that herbicide applications or um, mechanical kind of applications that is very, very costly. We were saying, well, can we have animals rejuvenate their own landscapes? And to get that jump started, one of the things we study several studies we did with sheep and cattle both was to show that if we could supplement them with a little bit of energy and protein, and the proteins, the ratio mattered quite a lot, but that's a detail. But if we could supplement them, they could eat significantly more sagebrush than if they weren't supplemented. And that was enhancing detoxification processes for goats, for sheep, for cattle. And so that was a way to get things, get things started. And from a practical standpoint, it really had big implications. Uh, there were people that, you know, had been feeding hay, which is so, that's the greatest cost in the West is winter feeding, as you, as you probably well know, you know, irrigating, cutting, baling, hauling hay, all the machinery. 
So we're working with people. How do you get out of those fossil fuel leak, <clears throat> fossil fuel uh, traps? And uh, one of the people, more than one, had been feeding hay uh, and seeing sagebrush land that they had as just something to try to get rid of. And when we got into this work and talking about the role of supplements and getting them thinking, well, if you supplement hay on that sagebrush land, those cattle will be able to eat more sage. And so, you know, we're working through processes like that, that, that goes back to that, that simple, maybe quote simple, that observation that nutritional status influences ability to utilize plants that are high in some of these secondary compounds that can be potentially toxic. And uh, that can have really important then practical implications for cutting the cost of ranch operation, basically. So that's a long-winded in the digression, but but you know, we were just getting into, as you say, the there's so much nuance in this that um I think for me what what our work over the years did was just to help realize what you were reflecting on earlier, that there's so many ins and outs to all of this, kind of puts you in a position of humility, not kind of it for me of that, you know, I guess it's that old saying, the less you know about something, the more more you easily generalize with nonstop about it, the more you get into it, you start to realize, oh my gosh, and you were articulating that nicely a few minutes ago when you said tremendous complexity, dynamism and complexity. I, I uh, really came to appreciate that. In my retirement, I've backed away from that quite a lot. You know, you think in a meal, tens of thousands of compounds we introduce into our body. You could never study that from a reductionist standpoint, all the interactions. And I've just come finally to to a point in older, getting older age of just appreciating that the body knows there's a wisdom. There's a wisdom to the body of creatures that if it's allowed to function and not hijacked by um, by industries, basically food industries, uh, one sort or another, there's a wisdom that's that's just amazing. It's it's unbelievably complex and sophisticated and uh, and never be able to to study all the interactions that go on in that. You finally reach a point where I guess you say it's a miracle, and, you're like, you're okay. and then a miracle happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cartoons. Uh, now, that's a lot where I am nowadays in my thinking and reflection on uh, on it all. Uh, it's just it's incredible. It's amazing. Well, and it, I, we could think of if if I could give exactly you know if we could have identical twins. And we could, and you had to have a lot of them because, you know, you need the numbers and you could give half of them, give them both the same diet, exactly the same, but one group of them can only eat in isolation just by themselves, never sit down at a table with family members or friends or colleagues, never have social interact. Would they have the same response? And I tend to think not. <laughs> I, I bet you're right, Peter. I, that's what the, I would. That's what I would be betting if if we were going to set up that study. You know, that's exactly. And what comes to mind too when you say that is this marvelous Nova special that I saw many many years ago, titled "Ghost in Your Genes." Mm. It's it's about epigenetics. 
it uh, it was produced when epigenetics was just really really getting rolling and so they were able to interview a lot of the scientists and just boy talk about nuance and when you're talk and they talking they they start out talking about identical twins and one has autism the other functioning normally and they're absolutely identical they're raised in the same family and they use that as the place to jump off into this whole idea that genes are being expressed and there's so many subtle things that are going happening uh, that are leading them to totally different kind of uh, morphologies physiologies behaviors that 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 come out of that it's uh, it's pretty it's amazing i still I've watched that many times and I still get chills watching that that special. It's just they so captured, um, so captured the, the spirit of the whole thing in that in that special. It was uh, they really did a, a wonderful thing. And now we're maybe, oh, how many years? Um, 15 years down the road hmm. on on some of that work. I remember talking to a young faculty member at the Poisonous Plants Research Lab, actually, near the end of my career. And in fact, we'd watched that movie. That was the first time I saw it. We'd watched that movie. And I said, well, you know, we never really did epigenetics, work in epigenetics. And he said, yeah, you did. That's what you were doing. All yeah. this early experience in utero, early life. And, and I said, you're right. We, you know, I mean, we weren't measuring which genes were being expressed and so forth. But that's really... When he said that, I appreciated it actually because uh, he recognized that we had actually been doing that. You know, looking at all the nuance of how how form and function are changed as a function of experience in utero early in life, or as you say, you know, if you had one set that's interacting with with folks during a meal, one that never, that's going to lead to different outcomes. And yeah, so the. Well, the epigenetics, we, we, we could look at, I think it's in cattle, they call it fetal programming or imprinting. Um, epigenetics tends to be what I hear about with humans, but we have the reality of um, the what happens with uh, gestational diabetes and then those children when they're adults and so something gets set up and then manifest as adults and it's clearly not the home life because now we're talking about i mean it plays a role undoubtedly but there's something in addition and um in fact um gary taubes his latest book the case for keto um he um I, I want him to, he describes some of us as people who fatten easily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to introduce him to the term easy keepers. <laughs> right. Again, building right. bridges between animal science and human. Um, but there's something different about some of us. We are predisposed and it may well be that a diet which one group of people could eat and remain as lean as they'd like to be and in good health will evoke a, exactly the opposite example in someone else. And the problem then is that researchers with 
who are naturally thin and aren't challenged with that condition, then look at people like that and say, well, if you just eat like me, you'd be okay. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> because they're not like you. <laughs> and so, you know, human nutrition is full of that kind of example. Boy, and I couldn't agree more with the point you're making, Peter. And it goes back to that, um, the joke that we both like to tell on individuality, huh? no two alike. And it, it, it is so true, but it's so easy to overlook that huh? I, I'm, for, for many people. Um, and uh, it's just, I think that's so fundamental to understanding what's, what's, um, why, why, why we differ so much one from the next and how, you know, the diet can, that can work good for one, maybe horrible for the next. But then we get into the issue that you raised a bit too of this whole, the transgenerational effects and where we are to a great extent now in, in society, how transgenerationally what's being trans, transmitted is not good. How transgenerational metabolic syndrome, uh, mothers who get fat during pregnancy, mothers who eat ultra-processed, you know, high-carb foods. That There's some pretty good research to indicate that you're going to set the baby up from, you know, starting in the womb for for an unhealthy lifestyle, huh? you know, un to be unhealthy in terms of, we know that the fetal taste system is fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. So the flavors of foods that mom's eating is getting into the amniotic fluid, you know, so you start to think about uh, what kind of diet is mother on? Is she on a really wholesome diet or uh, is she on a diet that's, I'm not trying to generalize across the averages, but you know what I'm getting at is she on a really ultra processed diet that that's going to um, influence what her child is wanting to eat and then what's in the home, mother as a model. I mean, it, it really, those, um, those get to be huge issues. And then how do you get out of that huh, as a mm -hmm. society? Once, you, once you're in that, that fix, it takes some extreme kind of, measures in terms of what quote the average person is actually able to to eat i was just visiting with a with a uh, a close friend and she she was her husband is has been put by his doctor on a, on a keto diet because he's you know very overweight not metabolically very unhealthy and he's got to get off of all the junk that he's on basically you mm -hmm. know yes and I can look back my own personal experiences. My mother, I was born in 1956. My mother was 43 years old, which, and, and part of it was her absolute focus that she wasn't going to have an only child. She had been one herself. And so my brother was born in 1950. And then there were several miscarriages in between. And now I'm in my, you know, wheelchair physician mode because it seems to me like my memory of her is always as a heavy Pennsylvania German, you know, woman um, and probably gestational diabetes, which I don't know how well they understood at the time, let alone, you know, so part of her challenge with her pregnancies. And so I come along then 
And that may well explain some of my challenges as I got into middle age and discovered that I was pre-diabetic and obese and um, was not wanting to end up being diabetic. Um, and, and so my level of carbohydrate has in my diet has to be much less than Nancy's does who didn't have that background. Um, and in fact, she can't eat the way I can. Um, so those sorts of differences and we need part of the messaging needs to be people need to be told there's a, there's, there's a great freedom here and you need to explore approaches that bring you the results that you seek and you're not going to kill yourself you're not going to destroy the planet you know that relax about that stuff focus on finding what works for you because nobody knows <laughs> i so appreciate that peter i so appreciate the the point that you're emphasizing um in conversations over the last month, maybe, uh, that I've had with different different people, <clears throat> they've made that, that same point as we've been talking and saying, you know, if people did that and tried to do it in ways that are good for their health, there would be no need, in a sense, for uh, nutrition guidelines or for all the recommendations because you would, you would let your body tell you what what's going to work best for it huh it, it it gets tricky because we do live in a world where there's a number of people who for a number of reasons need assistance and that you know you think of the millions of people that the united states government feeds every single day from service people to inmates to and and those so the guidelines for good or ill are part of that process. It would be nice if we could have a more science-based approach to those guidelines so that we could truly say, yeah, we want you to have all the eggs you want to eat and we want to have, you know, the, the meat and no, we don't want to pay for breakfast cereal or fruit juice or any, you know, we're a long way from there, hopefully. So, Part of me understands that there's got to be some kind of guidance in terms of how resources are, are are available. I remember when Nancy and I were in upstate New York, and this would be in the late 70s, we took advantage of some local food assistance, and we got hamburger, and we got you know the the cheese it was real cheese from you know the 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 programs that were in place and and that was because you know we were struggling financially and i was a student and nancy was working and you know those things our society should be able to do we're wealthy enough to do that um but we don't need to we we need to get the, the guidelines fixed, unfortunately, that there's no better way to put it, um, and maybe even fixed in the veterinary sense. Um, <laughs> so, so you were at Utah State for how long? 30 some? I was there for 35 years. 
35 years. Yeah, 35 years. And and you retired, what, when, what year did you retire? 2009. 2009, okay. And, and you then, so Utah State is in Salt Lake City? It's in Logan. University in Logan. Utah's in Salt Lake City. And yeah, the land grant uh, university, Utah State's in Logan. Yeah, forgive me, people. No, I'm, no, no. I'm sorry. Most people confuse that. Most people, you know, and I, I wouldn't have known either had I not lived out yeah. there for 35 years. So the, the beehive state, what's that about? Yeah, well, the in being industrious. Ah. Uh, the Mormons are quite industrious people, seriously. Okay. Industrious. And yeah. I was about about that, you know. Yeah. Well, one of one of the things I like to point to is we we have the Seventh Day Adventists, Loma Linda University. They like to release their studies, saying, "Look, you know, our our adherents are so healthy because they don't eat meat." And then I look and say, "Well, you're not that much different from members of the Latter Day." saints church in terms of longevity and they certainly eat their animal source foods maybe it's the other things that you have in common like smoking no alcohol no family life yes right life of faith right. and community that, yes that's expanding the are the the uh the ideas Beyond diet, which is very important, I think. You know, the, the social, you mentioned the social, and uh, my wife was involved in a study uh, that was taking place about longevity in, in the Mormon people. They're very, very long lived, and they were looking at social facets of their life. You know, at whatever age they are, they're still very much involved in community, and community that's nurturing one another, and that, that's a huge deal. Yeah. Huh? That's, yeah, yeah. So it's multi multifaceted for certain. What what health is, huh? and how yeah. all of that, how all of that that works together. Well, but we want these simple answers. Like if I just do this, then everything's okay. It's like, well, maybe it's more complicated than that. And and you know, um, so and, and our our simplified part depends on what we're studying, right? Uh, what we're studying becomes the central. The, the mantra of it, of it all, uh, oh, you know, of course. If you're studying nutrition and uh, some part of nutrition that, and I think it's important, but then to recognize that's just one strand in a really complex system, yeah. huh? So, so, I mean, my personal moment, just very recently, I have many of them, but the one most recently was um, <clears throat> your your the, the paper you co-hosted, uh, co-authored, with uh, Stefan Van Vliet and others on phytonutrients and phytochemicals. Um, and you, you know that my focus tends to be more on hyperinsulinemia as the root cause of these chronic diseases. And that somewhere down the line, if we could address that issue, then I have assurance that we'll find other issues. But the strength of that signal peak, you know, in the data is so strong that these others may be completely masked by it, or we may be confused. So, okay, there's that. But then there's the paper that I think you also co-authored co with him, or you shared a pre-pub with me. Certainly, Stefan is, I think, lead author on it that was looking at 
the the plant analogs, the the faux meat products. And what they're looking at is the nutrition label and saying, look, we're just like hamburger. And, and so now in that paper, there's a quantification of all these many different chemicals that are present in meat that aren't present in the analogs. And so now I'm like looking at that saying, oh, see, see, see that... <laughs> It's like, okay, Pete, come on, a little consistency here. Yes, they're there. Yes, it's different. How important? I don't know. Nobody knows. That's the point. Um, but in addition is just, if you understand food labels, you're also kind of like, I'm not sure that's a good argument for you to say that we're just like, it's not as strong as you think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. when so you you left university, you retired. I don't know how seamless that transition was, but then you describe moving a bit further out, shall we say, than Logan. Um, so how what you described? How many miles up dirt road, gravel road? We were twelve miles on gravelled road in from the main highway. Uh huh. We it's a heck of a driveway. In a, called, in a place called South Park. If you look at Colorado from north to south, there are four parks. North Park, which <laughs> Middle Park, South Park, and the San Luis Valley that run right down the center of the state. And so South Park, um, we were living at the south end of South Park. We were at 9,500 feet elevation in the transition zone between Aspen and Conifer Forest and these huge parklands. Um, and it was just, it was a beautiful place surrounded by 14,000 foot peaks. And I, I'm just thinking as we're talking on this topic, we'd go to one of these, one of the hills that was behind our house where you could overlook the park. And I used to sit there and think, you know, how many over the eons, how many thousand people have walked Mm. along here how many have have sat and looked at this view that i'm looking at and then i think about bison and bison families that that uh you know that people like frank meyer used to describe when he was hunting in those those areas and uh, just picturing them and then there were cattle up there cow calf groups and you could look across and see these little groups scattered across the landscape so yeah that's that's where we were peter was mm. was there yeah, I've had digressions where I've gotten really interested in Pacific Northwest geology and and the the ice age floods that that came out of the Missoula area blasted through northern Idaho and then scoured out the eastern Washington channeled scablands and ended up creating these temporary lakes, um, one of which formed the Willamette Valley. And, and you know, our soils here belonged up in the Palouse area, but got moved down. And, and, and that was 18,000 years ago, these things took place. And um, one professor out of Central Washington University, um, I've been listening to a lot and, it's it's getting very close to saying maybe there were actually people around during some part of that because there were they now think a hundred or so of these events 
that mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. in that 18,000 years ago. So this tremendous upheaval and heat, I think it's called uniformitarianism, was this guiding principle. And I really want to get him on. I want to talk to him about this. Um, it was the guiding principle of geology at the time saying, yes, the earth changes, but it's slow. We don't have these upheavals. And I think I understand part of why they were there. But this gentleman, J. Harlan Bretz, came in and said, wait a minute. No, no, no. This is clearly the, the result of large amounts of water moving at speed across this landscape before he could ever get up in the air and look down on this. He could see, you know, ripples in the landscape and he could see um, uh, streamlined pillars left in the channeled scablands where it was clearly water came this way and it was pointy at this end and not at this end. And, and how do you farm coolies? and all those landforms. And so your point about sitting in a place and wondering is one that resonates with me because we have a very short residence time. And, you know, we think that what we've experienced in our life represents what it's always been, what it always will be. Um, And so, Next week, I'll get to drive out to southern Idaho and then down into Utah and then back across Nevada to come back home and looking at that landscape going, hmm, now I understand why I see those ridges coming down the sides of the Columbia Gorge. Now I understand why, you know, we have so that kind of awareness as we sit and look at the landscapes that we're in and then imagine, okay, now we don't, we don't live as hunter gatherers anymore. And again, 2050, it's projected that more than 70% of the world's population is going to live in urbanized areas. We're like at 80%, as I understand it in the United States. So it, it, it's that trajectory. So we're obviously looking at food being produced in areas and then moved into where the population is because they can't grow food there. And, and, and then overlay that with the need, I say, for animal source food. And how are we going to produce that in a way that's sustainable in, you know, preserving the environment in which they take place. So that was a big, you know, but I digest as a friend says, I want to get. <clears throat> uh, let me, let me make one other comment, Peter. It, okay. it just raised so many good, good points in my mind uh, relative to the powers of observation. I remember seeing some fabulous documentaries on, on what you were talking about related to that. And, uh, and then, then this whole idea of that you, you know, as you were moving on, well, before we we went to the backwoods, you're talking about um, you know the diets of an or, or the yeah the diets of animals and phytochemical richness of meat versus those kind of things. And I just wanted to um, make a point there too. I think our interest, uh, the group that I'm working with in that whole topic, would be rooted, I guess. 
as much as anything in the importance of the diversity of plants on landscape, the importance of plant diversity for the health of, of landscapes for creatures below ground and above ground as well. And then the ripple effects that that can have on the health of uh, livestock in our case, just the physical health of animals that, that get you out of, out of uh, inputs like we, we have to do when we raise under animals under conditions where, where that don't generate health. And then the scaling up that, that the, the diets they eat may have influence on, on the health of the milk and meat and dairy for, for human consumption. It's those linkages. And then that link us back to, to the landscapes like we're describing here, huh? Uh, mm. It, it's it's part of that wicked problem. Wicked it's part of that yeah. wicked, wicked problem. <laughs> so this book, Nourishment, uh, when was this, when did this book release? It was in November of 2018, Peter. Okay. So, and, and from what you've told me, that was a big product. That was obviously during your early retirement <clears throat> transition and there's there's a particular chat i mean the the whole book um is one that stretches my brain so thank you for that um but the the, the chapter dining on earth a visitor's reflection and one of the things that made me stop um you talked about the gifts that you had been given and you just one of your sub chap headings is my gift of cancer. So, as as someone you know, I lost both my parents in 1969 to cancer. So, um, that was something that made me kind of go, "Gift, okay, could you?" And and that was one of the gifts that you described. And so if you could just kind of go through why you consider them gifts, um, I, I'd love to, to hear that. Oh, absolutely, Peter. And I'm happy that, that you're interested to go there. You know, I've done a lot of podcasts by now, and it depends on, on the interviewer where, where they want to go, but a lot of... Um, we, we don't often go this direction, you know, yet to me, you know, when I think about the book, there are five sections to the book. And the first three are really kind of review of the research we did and trying to link that in with ideas relative to human. And then the last two sections, um, dining with uncertainty and is the fourth and then fading into mystery. You know, this whole idea that, okay, we learn a lot, but ultimately, there's still tremendous, tremendous uncertainty and trying to learn to embrace uncertainty, how to just be, to come to come to be at peace with that. And I'm not saying I've done that, but I mean, that was where that whole, and then, then fading into mystery, the whole mystery and wonder of a visit to this planet. And that last chapter then, to me was really just kind of personal reflections on, on what had happened. And I think one, of, I haven't looked at the book since summer of 2018. So I kind of, uh, sometimes I get reminded of things I didn't remember I put, but I think there's a, a subheading, Cosmic Voyager with Amnesia. And and I just, you know, and everyone, again, is 
unique. How we each look at the world in our own way. And so I'm not saying anybody should look at any of this this way, but it's just me trying to reflect on on those gifts. And uh, the first one I talked about was five years of depression. And I remember when I was entering into that in the late 80s, and I've been happy-go-lucky my whole life, you know, I mean, just never, and all of a sudden, I'm dropping into this strange world that I don't even know what's going on, how that's happening, what what's happening with that, and uh, like I said, used to say, I, I had to look up to see a worm, I was just, I don't know if you've ever had that, or I know a lot of people have that though suffer and it's just it's just uh it's incredible to enter into that into that world and then i have to lasted for five years and i just thought i would never go away after a while i thought this is just going to be the way it is not a whit of you know all the things that used to interest me which was everything you know i was just but yet had to keep going and functioning i was on the faculty and uh and uh so it, it was just, it, it was a very strange time. And during that time, <clears throat> my wife and I and our two young kids went to Australia for a sabbatical, still in the throes of, of that. And I'll tell you a little story. There was an editor at the Ag Experiment Station that I, I liked quite a lot. He's a very sarcastic guy, and I kind of liked that about him. And he was always giving me a hard time about it. <laughs> but he did a great job editing our papers that we were submitting. But the day before we left, Daddy, it was the end of the day. I went over to, to, to visit with him and just tell him goodbye. We were leaving, and, and he looked at me, and excuse the French right here, but he, he, he looked at me and he said, you're a sick bastard. And I said, I know. I, you know I, I was honest with you. I was telling him. And they couldn't believe it. But he said, take this and read it. And so he gave me this, this book. and. Uh, I took it when we got to Australia. We were living before we got into a house in the Tablelands up near in Armadale. It's very, very cold. Um, wind blow, howling, freezing in that trailer. We'd be bundled in our sleeping bags and we're reading this book. It's The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyer. That's a special that they did before Joseph Campbell died, a six part series in this book. And I was reading that and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, this is what I've wondered about. My whole life, things I've thought about, but nobody ever was talking about that, whether it was in my Roman Catholic upbringing or in uh, in uh, any classes or anything. And it's like, wow, this is what I've wondered about my whole life. And so that was a first a first wake up for me. I finally did come out of the depression, but I never taught a class the same way after that. I never did anything the same way. And that's where I, th I just thought, well, maybe I'd become a cosmic voyager with amnesia. I needed to be reminded of some things here. And I certainly, so the classes always had to relate to, to much broader things than just the detail of the class, the, the more philosophical kind of, um, what would you say? I guess more, more philosophical kind of way. So uh, broader way to context than just the detail. So, that was first. Then 10 years later, I needed another reminder, I guess. And that was the cancer. That was the cancer period. And I seem to fall into this thing. And I still have to watch myself. You know, of loving work and getting too busy. 
loving to do things. And so you know, I was running like like mad. And uh, and then I I uh, in '99 I I wasn't feeling well. I had a cough. Uh, it wasn't that I felt terrible, but I just had this cough, this nagging cough, and just not not quite peppy. And I didn't ignore it, so I was going to doctors and and uh, and. They were just prescribing. You know, I wasn't really getting at cause at all. It was, well, you know, maybe bacteria will put you on antibiotics. That didn't work. Went to another doctor. Well, maybe maybe it's allergies. I never had an allergy in my life, but it gives me antihistamine. You know, I was kind of, it was just symptom stuff. I went to a third doctor, ear, nose, and throat specialist. He says, well, whatever your problem is, it has nothing to do with that. He gave me a thorough checkup. I said, well, our main doctor died, like, couple of years ago can you recommend someone you recommended you said there's two young doctors in the community that are really I really like them and he he, he said why don't you try them and so I, I went to one this is in in October and uh, he spent an hour with me and it, it felt so good to have somebody sit down and just start asking you really really probing questions could you have AIDS could you you know I mean just and there's no way I could have, but it was just like, we're finally going to get at something. And he did a rectal and said, oh, this doesn't look good. I think you need to do have a colonoscopy, you know, so get on the list, went in in early November. And then the Monday before Thanksgiving, they called and they said, well, you need to come down here and talk with us. And so, you know, they're not going to be telling you that your colon looks good, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the day before Thanksgiving, we went there. And I'm telling this long story to, to make a point here related to uh, this idea that uh, I've said I needed cancer and I got it. But so so we went in there and the doctor is showing these photographs of what he photographed in my lower colon. And he's saying, you know, this is cancer and it doesn't look good at all. I'm sending these samples to the University of Utah for a second opinion. But um you know, this looks, this is really serious. And then he's starting to talk about surgery. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no way I can do surgery till like middle of March. <laughs> Have you ever had those times when you're just so thankful you don't say what you're thinking because you look like such an idiot? And that's, that was one of them because I'm thinking all these things and I'm saying this to just, you know, you get some, you get so quote busy you're, you're running 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 and doing all this stuff and and uh and by the end of the conversation i realized you're going to be in here for surgery just as quickly as we can get you in here we're going to do one more colonoscopy so they can mark where that is and you're going to be in here in no time and and so it's just thankful that i didn't say anything so you know another week later i guess 10 days whatever it was early December. And I was in, went in for surgery. Um, and it was just surreal, actually, to, to think that you've actually got cancer and that it could be the end, end of you as you know yourself, you think you know yourself. Um, it was just, it, it, the energy level somehow changed. It, it was just, it was very, very surreal. And then I remember the morning of the, the operation in the hospital very, very early. And, uh, you know, they're doing all the pre-op kind of 
talks with you and stuff. And then I remember walking down the hall. Well, one of my students was in there. He was in tears. And uh, and then walking down the hall and everything in me wanted to run the other direction. It's like, I don't want to go. Like, you know, like, but, you know, you can't. So, so then go in for the surgery. And... Uh, and then after the surgery, that's when it, it was amazing what happened. And I'm still reflecting on, on what happened. But there in the hospital, the nurses were so kind, you know, to care for you and uh, hustle and bustle during the day. And you're getting up just to try to get up. It, you're, it hurts so bad from the surgery, the, the, the incision, the deep hurt and then the, the incision. So you try to walk around in the day, but at night it's so quiet and the, the lights of the Christmas trees shining in. And something happened, and I'm still learning about what, what happened, but um, this incredible peace came over me, Peter. This, this peace that I had never, I, I had never felt that peace before. Um, and it was a peace that that was like, Everything, and I mean everything, is, I've never been able to ca capture the, the words of this, but there's never anything to worry about, ever, ever. You know, it, it's like this form that you're in now is temporary. Um, it's going to go, but there's not nothing to worry about. So <clears throat> here recently, this last winter, I started reading a book by Eckhart Tolle titled The Power of Now. And it's about enlightenment and it's about his enlightenment and what happened to him during that. And when he describes what, what that was, what happened to him and, and what that, uh, the peace and the at oneness with all that ever is or was or whatever, the words he uses, I wish I had them right here in front of me. I, I would read them because it's like, that's what happened to me. That's that's what I felt was that experience. Now, I'm not saying that I became enlightened. I don't think I did. But that peace that he was talking about it's and, and that at oneness, it's like, that was it. That's it. That's what happened to me. And uh, the power of that. Um, so cancer and... Cancer was, it, it, that was a second transformation of my consciousness, of the way that, and Tolley talks about, he said, you know, there's a couple of ways that you can reach enlightenment if you're interested in that. He said, one is to get into the moment, to, to live in the now, forget the past, forget the future, but be in the now. And so a lot of his book is about how do you be in the moment? And it's, he and there's another book I'm reading, uh, which is titled Prior to Consciousness by Siri Nisargadatta. And he's talking the same thing as an enlightened being. And how do you do that? And the power of uh, they all talk about the mind body as one thing and then consciousness as something that's separate. And we live in the mind body, the mind, the talking, the constant chatter. They're saying the way to start toward enlightenment is to get in the consciousness and let that lead you. So anyway, that's probably way, way more than than what you wanted. But Tolly says, OK, so there's two ways to do that. One is through getting 
now and shutting down the mind chatter. The other is the way of the cross. And that's how most people get there. And that's the way that I got there. Is that you're, you're so tortured, you finally end up at that point. Huh? And, and you surrender and you break through to another level. So maybe more than far more than you wanted, Peter. But that's it's perfect. what I find now in the years that I have left that I reflect on that a great deal. And my reading, that that interests me a great deal, reading about these people who have become enlightened and the path they took to transcend that, kind of die before you die. But the beauty is that peace that that Tolly talks about that just transcended. There, there is no worry left then. There is absolutely, and again, my words don't capture it. He said it better than any thing I've ever read, but it was this just profound. And he said, it's this deeply felt, it's not a conscious cognitive thing. It's this deeply felt uh, at oneness and peace. And uh, boy, that's when he described that, it's like, oh my gosh, that's what happened to me after cancer. Well, that's what, what was happening. And um, I know, you know, you mentioned your parents dying of cancer and i'm thinking of how many people i've known who have had cancer and and the conversations we've shared after i had cancer that were really good for them and good for me too you know it's been 23 years now i guess it's been quite a while since i went through that but boy when that's happening and those years after that it's just so intense it was amazing amazing time you know mm. i'm glad i had it i'm happy i had it mm. well and, and the again the connections between human beings that something like that a shared experience you know details differ but that those are the important things there's so much fluff today, um, and and if there were time, we'd talk about having to shed the fluff of being the university professor to being the retired university professor. But you go into that in the book, and so I commend uh, nourishment to the listeners, and I'll put links in show notes. Um, Fred, I really, it's good for my heart to talk with you or to listen with to you when I've had that pleasure. Um, I've asked you a bunch of questions and you've been very generous with your answers. It's only fair to give you the opportunity to ask me questions if you have any. Otherwise, I'll say goodbye for now and, and wish you the, all the best. Well, Peter, I um, what I would say in closing is how much I appreciate the relationship that we've had over the years and getting to know one another better. And I hope that we get to know one another. I think we, we probably are as we're going along just with conversations that we've had in the past and then with conversations like this. And I want you to know how much I've appreciated that and how much I appreciate the work that you're doing and, and your, your um, deeply felt um, and well-reasoned approaches to, to interest in health, health of, of human beings and the planet that we're on. So I, I very much appreciate that, Peter, and I want you to know that. Thank you, Fred. That means a great deal. Um, be well, stay warm, um, avoid the wind, uh, enjoy the snow while it's still there on your own personal cross-country track. 
And uh, until the next time, my friend. Great, Peter. Thank you. Same to you.